Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, just as a review, God created a good world. He created a world that was perfect in every way. There was a perfect relationship with God. There were perfect relationships with man to man. There was a perfect relationship in our world. And then the fall came. And the fall brought horrendous results. Your relationship with God is broken. We're going to see it very clearly this morning. Our relationship to one another is broken. We've been looking at that. The relationship to our world is broken. We see that all around us. You, anytime you read the newspaper, anytime you watch the television, you're going to see the results of the fall. It's very clear to us. And so, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the presence of God, when they are um, placed in a place uh, really under... The curse we see very clearly that in our world. Yet, we see God's grace. That's one of the things I heard someone discussing this morning as they were talking about. They said it's just amazing that right after the fall becomes God's promise and God's mercy extended. God is there to come and restore the situation. Everything's broken and God is going to progressively reveal how He is going to save a people for Himself. One of the things that just kind of stuck out to me this week is I was thinking about Americans. I don't know how many of y'all, uh, Ann and I went and spent the night in Little Rock on Friday night because I had a doctor's appointment on Friday. And then on Friday night we spent the night and on Saturday we um, uh, got up. And so at some point we watched more television than normal. And uh, one of the things I just noticed was just how how much the, the, the television like guides my thoughts. Man, I was so ready to rebuild my house and go on trips. I mean, I couldn't imagine. There was a list so long of all the things I needed to experience in this life. You know, after watching that for, for, for an extended period of time. But Americans don't want to get old. Americans want to kind of drink from the fountain of youth. They want to kind of live forever. There's kind of this facade that that is what you really want and that's what you're going for. But ultimately, we realize whatever situation you're in, you know how some people are constantly tired of the place that they're in. They don't really like being in high school. They don't really like being in college. They can't wait to get married. And so they get married and they don't really like that. Or then they get married and they want kids so bad and they just got to have them. They get the kids and it's like, oh, this is horrible. And then it's just like when the kids leave and when I get to retire and there's this long list because we always feel like we're never really at home. That is part of the fall. We are not really ever at home. This present world is not our home. And we need to see that we really don't want to drink from the fountain of youth. And we do not really want to live here for the rest of, of, of our existence. This is a fallen world and it's broken. And I was just, I remember as a young man, listen to this older guy say to me one time, I, I looked at him and I said, wouldn't you love to, he was a great pastor, a great preacher. I said, wouldn't you love to take this church and lead it, you know, and just start back young and just, you know. And he said, no, I have walked this road and I don't want to go there anymore. He was waiting to be with his Lord. That is the end goal and that was what should drive us. And there's enough trouble in this life to remind us that we are travelers and we want to be. We want to be traveling through this life. We don't want to stay here. And I think some of the, what we need to just see this morning, if we're honest, we just kind of take a breath this morning and say, okay, let's look at the garden, let's look at the brokenness, and let's look at God's promise, and let's cling to it. So that's kind of what we'll do this morning as we're moving ahead. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, 
the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This is kind of an interesting thing. Why does he say that this morning? It's a statement, in some, a lot of people would say it's a statement of faith. They have just sinned and there's no doubt that death is coming. But God has promised to them that there will be one that will come who really will reverse the curse. So, so there's some element here where no doubt we say, well, one step is this. They're the first couple. So anything that comes out of them, they're going to be populating the earth. But not just that. He doesn't say, oh, she's the mother of the dead. She's the mother of the dead men walking. But instead, He says, she's the mother of the living because really in that potentially, as they're having babies, they realize that one is going to come that is going to transform all of this. He is going to defeat the work of Satan. And I think it's just important to note as you're looking at this, there's a measure of believing in the grace of God. Believing in the Lord's provision. Believing that God is going to do something to change this present situation. That's really, there's a sense in which you could say after studying with us in Genesis 3, you think, are y'all pessimistic? And the reality is, no, I'm not. I'm very optimistic, but I'm not so pessimistic. I'm pretty pessimistic when it comes to this present age because this present age is passing away, but the one who does the will of God will live forever with him, and he's going to rest- God's going to restore all things, and it gives me hope and a promise, and I, I, I rejoice in that. And you should too. Now, let's look at verse 21. So we move from that kind of step of saying, Adam speaking out and saying, I believe that there's someone coming to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now this is interesting. One of the things that's helpful in studying the Bible, and, and I've probably said this a bunch and probably said it a lot more, is that the Bible is progressive revelation. And what I mean by that is that in one sense, if you're on a chart, you're moving along, you say God reveals something to us and He reveals more and more and more and it just keeps growing in knowledge. Mankind, really, are, we get to see God's the glorious picture, especially us, as we read Genesis, it's in part, but it's growing and growing and growing and growing. Now, when we're looking at this text, again, looking at progressive revelation, we're reading this grand novel with people who've already read the New Testament. And so that knowledge, sometimes we don't understand what Genesis tells us, what Adam and Eve received is a lesser understanding than what you have, you and I have today. Because we have the full revelation of God. And so I just mentioned that to say, we need to see that, and when we read this, we need to go, good night, what else do we know? What do we know more than them? And we'll do that as we interact in the text today. Okay, so what does God reveal to us here? When God covers them, what does He reveal? He reveals that He is gracious. He's revealing that, you know what? Leaves don't really cover us. You could be covered up with leaves, God is saying, but Adam and Eve, those leaves, the work of your own hands, will not deal with your sin. He's he's revealing that to us because we need to see God is a gracious God here. He is doing something. He's saying, the leaves aren't going to satisfy me. He's going to cover them in another way. The second thing we see, is that salvation, now this is important, 
that throughout the Bible, salvation is by substitution. Salvation is by substitution. That is, throughout the Scripture, something must die for sin. And throughout the the Old Testament, all of these animals are going to die for sin. They are going to be killed in the place of man. It's a very powerful picture. God is revealing that to us. You remember, as you're moving forward in Genesis 22, Isaac goes up on the mountain and he raises up his knife. And as he does, I mean, Abraham raises up his knife to slay his son Isaac, and God stops him and he provides an animal in the place of Isaac. Later, as you're moving through the Bible, you see there's a time where God is going to kill the firstborn of all of Egypt. And what does he do? As he's coming along there, he's about to do that, and he looks to the children of Israel and says, Look, you take a one-year-old, an unblemished lamb, and you kill that lamb in the place of your family, or really in the place of your firstborn. You kill the lamb, you take the blood, and you put it over the doorpost, and it's a covering for you. The angel of death is going to pass through, and as he does, he is going to pass over your house because there has been blood that's been laid there, and there's a substitute for the firstborn in all of Egypt. You keep reading the Bible and God sets that up as a perpetual thing. Step by step through the tabernacle and temple, blood is flowing out of the temple all of the time. The priests were a bloody mess. They were a people that they killed and slayed animals over and over. And sometimes there's a visible example where the people will confess their sins over the animal and the animal is taking their place. You see that? Every step of the way, God is progressively revealing His plan to save a people through substitution. It's important to see that. Now I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hold your place in Genesis. Go to Hebrews. And I want you to note a few things in Hebrews 10 verse 1. So as you're turning there, I just want you to see what is the purpose for all of this that's taking place. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no, cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now what is he trying to tell us? That all of those sacrificial things were but a shadow of what was to come. They were a type of what's to come. They were something that's almost a visual example of what would come. Everything in the Scripture, all of those sacrifices, everything that's taking place is a sign of a greater substitute. Animals would not really substitute for man. Man had to substitute for man. But an imperfect sacrifice can't substitute for man. It must be a perfect sacrifice to substitute for man. In verse 9 and 10, Notice, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's this sacrifice that takes place that is, 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 it satisfies God. It's the only sacrifice that did satisfy God. It is the sacrifice that is above all sacrifices. It is the only one that really dealt with our sin. The sacrifice of Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever put a band-aid on a situation? I mean a bad one. Like maybe your car you know, started getting a flat and you just kept putting air in it and shoot a little something in it and say, when I get the money, I'll come up with it you know, and I'm going to deal with that and we'll, we'll get it fixed. Or maybe your roof was leaking and so maybe you put buckets down and you, know, you think, one of these days, I'm going to save up my money, I'm going to deal with the issue, I'm going to make sure I take care of it. I just had a friend call me and it just, I, mean, I was kind of blown away. He had a heart attack. No joke. And he doesn't have health insurance. And so, I mean, they, they, I mean, he talked with some people that said, look, man, there's no question. Those are signs of a heart attack. But his health insurance hadn't kind of come in yet. And so, guess what? He's just kind of waiting it out. A band-aid on the situation. I'm just going to kind of eat better, exercise, take me an aspirin every day. You know, kind of a scary thing, right? But ultimately, like when we're thinking about temporary fixes, there's a sense in which, in much lesser sense, that God is covering this sin, but saying one day I'm going to really deal with it, and I'm going to forever deal with it. Everybody in the Old Testament was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the promise alone. They were looking forward to God saving a people. Everybody in the New Testament, they're looking back, and they're saying we see what God did, and we're trusting in what God has done in the past, all along the way, it's always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That is what the Scripture teaches. And that is the way that it is. And let me say something. If you are trusting in anything else but salvation by substitution, you are on your way to hell. I mean, it's just very clear. You cannot trust in your works. They will never get you there. If you've been in Christ Community Church long, so long that you've kind of gotten hardened to hear this, hear it again. There is no hope for man in and of himself. Man by himself is completely and absolutely incapable of coming up with, to God. He cannot enter into access with God. He cannot deal with his sin. That Never, ever. It's just putting on leaves. It is not... It is not putting on Christ and Christ alone. That is our only hope. And this is a glimpse. Right? Genesis 3.21 is grasping at that and helping us see that the covering needs to be placed. There must be one to die. And it is but a glimpse of what is to come in Jesus. Third thing we see. I just think, man, I don't know how many times. Sometimes I feel like, I will tell somebody this and then I'll have to tell them again and tell them again and tell them again. When you see, when you hear somebody say, God, God is, is loving. God is loving and He's just going to like look past my sin. They're believing a lie. And the reality is often they don't want Him to look past anybody else's sin but their own. But the third thing I think that we see in this text is that God is just. God is just. And did you know if you never sinned another day, 
in your life, you're still condemned. If the rest of your actions were righteous in all those sins of the past, you could say, but Lord, I live perfect from the next 30 years. Just forget about the last 30. No, God is just. And He does not forget about sin. The Scripture says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. We need to see that. God is a just God. He is a just God that will not pass over our sin. Now I want you to hear this. Because this is important. You got that part. Now listen to this part. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And listen to this. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You know what that means? It means that God is not passing over your sin. God is not forgetful. God doesn't burn up the list of your sins. What God does is, for those who've trusted in Christ, He places your sin on His Son. He is both a just God and He is a justifier. That means that God is both saying, I'm going to be just and the justifier, and you're going to see that at the cross. I'm going to uphold my righteousness. I'm going to uphold my judgment. Then I'm going to extend mercy to you because I placed it on my Son. You see? I think all of this, you say, why are you going to all that? Because I think this is a glimpse of that. Everything that we're seeing in that 21st verse is a glimpse of what is taking place. Do you, do you know a God like that? Do you really know Him? Are you just a cultural Christian who thinks, oh, I've lived a pretty good life and God and I are in good shape? Are you just kind of a cultural Christian that thinks, you know, it's good for my kid to go to church. We should probably get up. Are you just kind of that cultural kind of mentality that it's just something? Or are you someone who sees the fierce wrath of God being poured out on His Son for you? And you're trusting in that. And you're clinging to that as a sinner saved by the grace of God alone. Or are you still doing the do's and don'ts Christianity where you're trusting in your own works and you're like, well, I don't drink and I don't dance and I don't da-da-da-da-da or go with girls that do and so God's going to accept me. You are a fool if you think that. That is crazy talk. I don't do this. I don't do that. I've got a list of five that all good Christians in East Texas, they embrace. And so guess what? I'm not really a sinner. And I don't really need a Savior. That's a scary place to be. But there are people here in this area, that's their Gospel. I'm saved by all the nice little things that I do. Keep moving in this verse. Verse 22, we'll kind of move forward as we're unpacking this. In verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of his in knowledge of us, sorry, in knowledge of good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Let's kind of, he's going to stop them here. He's saying, Look, notice what's taking place. It's kind of this question of what would happen if man went and grabbed this, this, the, a bite from the eternal life tree or from the tree of life? What's going to take 
place. You know, it's interesting. God, I mean, sorry. Um, Satan kind of said, look, if you do this, if you go and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to kind of be like God. But ultimately, the knowledge that he got corrupted them. And I think it's important to note that. And now God is saying, we're going to stop them from eating the tree of eternal life so that they won't live in eternal death. I just kind of think about that with me just for a minute. What would it have been like to forever live as dead men walking? Uh, Ann and I were joking about vampires. We t- they talk about they kind of live forever. They live forever in this world and they never really die and it's just this really strange thing. And so, what would life be like to be like that? What would life be like to live in a fallen world with a broken sinful heart perpetually? What would it be like if God said, yeah, go grab from the eternal life tree and you get eternal life, but live a state of eternal death? What would that be like? What would it be like to spend your whole life in this present world, even if it was just you individually, if you really could drink from from uh, this youthful kind of drink, and then you, you drink of it and you just kind of live as you watch people die over and over and over again. There is more grace here than, than I, I could really even grasp. You see that? If they bypass God's way of eternal life, they would live in a state of eternal death. That is a horrendous picture. No one wants to live in this corrupted world in this corrupted way perpetually. But I will say this, if you do not turn to Jesus, you will live consciously in a place of eternal torment where you will live there perpetually. That Our only hope is to turn to Him. And I, just, I say that because I think it's just important that we see it is gracious of God here to stay us, keep us from that eternal life when we're living in a perpetual state of death and dying and decay and sin and darkness. Now, one last little thing. You, I just because and, and Charlotte mentioned this to me this morning. Jonathan Edwards, when speaking about this text, he says before they cast them, um, before he cast them out of the garden, he clothed them, and he, he emphasized the mercy of God. He's saying. All of this, we see God being gracious to them before they're cast out of the presence of God. And that's important for us to see. So as we move into this, we realize that God has already acted on their behalf. So let's look at verse 23 and 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We, we want to, when we want to see this, I just think it's important that you see it. They are being cast out of the presence of God. They are cast out into the cursed world. They are leaving this place of blessing and they are going to experience the curse. They are going out into this hostile old creation where it's going to be difficult in every area. And I just think it's important that the anxieties of having children and trying to feed them and and all this and feeling distant from God and not being close to Him, all of this is going to be characteristic of this age. 
Ultimately, we're going to see throughout the Scripture as, as we see man separated from God, from the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle and in the temple, we always see the cherubim there. It's kind of this picture for us to be reminded that God is holy and that we are sinful. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot... I mean, we can unpack that and spend a lot of time there this morning, but I want you to see Jesus in this, okay? I want you to understand what He has done for us. We're outside of the garden. We're outside of the presence of God. We are under the curse. We're living in a fallen world. Everything is lost. Everything is broken. And yet we find out what the Scripture tells us. The Scripture speaks of Jesus as the temple and the tabernacle. John 1.14 says that He became flesh and He tabernacled among us. Jesus said to people, look, you, you destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to raise it up. He's speaking of His body. In Revelation 21, it states that God Himself is the temple. This whole idea of Jesus coming to us so that we could have access again to the temple. Listen to this. Access into God's presence no longer requires a priest or a temple because Jesus was at once. The sacrifices needed the priest and the temple. The Scripture unpacks that for us. Just listen to Hebrews 9. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood and goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I just think it's important this morning that we as believers understand that we were cast out of the presence of God, but Jesus has brought us near to God. He has given us access to God. We are now in relationship with God. He has seated us positionally in heaven with God. We are with Him. It's a marvelous picture. But not yet. We are, but not yet. We have been seated with Him positionally, but practically we're living in this fallen world and so we keep running back to these truths and keep trying to embracing them but we're also crying out all along the way, come Lord Jesus, come set up Your kingdom. Come bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Come and restore all things so that we do have complete access. Revelation, just listen to these verses. In Revelation 21, 2 and 3, when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven, a loud voice cries out, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21, 22 and 23, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Revelation 22 speaks of the river flowing and the tree of life there, and there will be no more darkness, and we'll be with our Lord forever and ever, and He will shine. The light of the sun will shine before us. It is a glorious picture. It's this idea as a Christian, we are believing in the promise that God has seated us with Christ, that we have access to God, that we can pray continually, that we have to offer no more sacrifices. We are trusting in that, and we are awaiting the day when we will experience what they experienced in Eden, but far greater because there will be no more evil there. Do you see that this morning? Are you seeing that in in Genesis, He's setting the stage and answering it all in Revelation? It is a beautiful thing for us. We should be sober this morning. 
Because there's a horrific nature of sin and it's, it's within us and we're fighting against it. We should be sober this morning because there are people who are out in the world who are lost. It should never be fun for us to talk about a lost world. It should never be fun for us to talk about oh, the heathen out there. We should be longing, as, as, as Spurgeon said, longing to see them come to faith. We should be proclaiming the message of the Gospel. We should be wrapping our arms around their knees and begging them to repent. It should never be a joy to talk about how bad the world is and how bad those people are and how they're our enemies. They are our mission field. And God has called us to proclaim to people everywhere that God has made a way. That man's under the curse, but God has made a way through His Son. And as a believer here this morning, instead of keeping up, picking up leaves and sewing them together, we should see that we have been covered in the work of Christ. We've been clothed with His righteousness. We have experienced the glorious concept of, of redemption and salvation in Christ. We should overflow with gratitude. This love that has been extended to us is so unbelievable, it's almost impossible for our minds to conceive. Honestly, it will be an eternity of seeing it. An eternity of, of trying to understand more fully the great work accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. Are you living in gratitude? Do you love to hear the story? Are you longing to share with others? Do you want your children to see this marvelous picture? All of these things should be on our hearts and our minds. So this morning as we come to the time together of the Lord's Supper, I hope this morning you're reminded of the marvelous grace that's in Christ. Would you pray with me? And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, we just we are grateful. We are sobered over our sinful condition. We do see it as radically difficult and, and dark, yet we are driven to the cross. We see justice and mercy come together there. We see that Jesus was once for all. He paid the price. He entered into the holy place. He laid down His life through His own blood and He is there for us today that by faith we can follow in with Him, have access to You, have a future promise, all those beautiful things. Lord, let us not take those lightly this morning. We ask You in, in, in the power of Your Spirit to move our hearts. In Christ's name, Amen.